Hey everybody, this is Tim. Before we get into the interview with Shannon Mills about Avengers Endgame, I just want to remind you that we've got an awesome giveaway going on in relation to our 100th episode. We got stuff from Sound Radix, including Auto Align Post and the Radical Bundle 3. We've got a license for RX-7 from Isotope. And the big grand prize is the Odyssey Collection Essentials from Pro Sound Effects. So if you would like to uh, get a chance to win any of those, listen to episode 100 for all the details. It's episode 100 with Mark Mangini. Or you can go to ToneBendersPodcast.com. On the main menu, click on TB Giveaway. Okay, one more thing before we get to the show. I want to send out a huge thanks to Ryan McQuinn from Neon Dolphin Music, who volunteered to edit this show. Ryan is a freelance composer, sound designer, and audio editor from Central Florida. If you're listening to this podcast and need reliable help on your project, he wants to work with you. It was great working with him on this. So contact him at Neon Dolphin Pro on Twitter or at Ryan at NeonDolphinMusic.com. Okay, let's get to the show. Tone Benders, my name is Renee Coronado, and with me today it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee, how you doing? Good. We've got a very special guest today. It's Shannon Mills, the supervising sound editor for Avengers Endgame. Hey, Shannon, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a little while, and this is the perfect opportunity to do it because uh, the numbers just came out today. It's basically the biggest movie that was ever thought of or dreamed into existence. It was a huge <laughs> hit over the weekend. Renee and I both saw it, and it blew my mind in particularly. And uh, I'm really glad that the way it all came together, I guess we don't want to give too many spoilers out or anything, but it's a really satisfying movie. And it is not an easy sound design film. There is a lot going on in this film. <laughs> there, there is definitely a lot going on. And, and you know, it's, it's, I'm glad you guys saw it and enjoyed it. It's kind of the culmination of, you know, what Marvel's been doing for years over, I guess this is like the 22nd movie now. Uh, so, uh, you know, they've kind of been building this climax for years and, uh, yes, it's quite challenging and quite a lot going on. And it's not your first Marvel flick, obviously. How did you get started down this whole path that, that, that led you to where you are right now? How did I get started? I, I was a musician for years and I guess like a lot of, uh, people my age, uh, Star Wars was a big influence on me as a kid. And um, seeing the work that Ben Burt did and uh, just kind of being amazed that that was an actual job that someone could do uh, kind of drew me, drew me in over time. And then how did you get on the Avengers films or Marvel films, I guess? On Marvel, I started, uh, I started out on the first one, which was Iron Man 1 doing sound design along with uh, Chris Boys, and that kind of kicked off the whole franchise, it seems. That was such an iconic film. Yeah, yeah. It's still one of my favorites, probably just because it was the first one I got to work on. <laughs> A lot of fun. So you started off as not the supervising sound editor, just the sound, one of the sound designers. How did you work your way up to the top of the food chain there? 
Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was the sound designer on that film. And then a few years later, there was some scheduling difficulties on Captain America 1, and they called me in to help out. So I worked on that film, doing some special sound design. Uh, and I started working with a gentleman, the picture editor, Jeff Ford, on that film as well, uh, who was also the picture editor on Endgame. Oh, wow. And so we worked really well together, and he stuck around and did several more Marvel films, as did I. So after that movie, it seemed like I started moving into supervising, and after meeting those people and forming that group. So when you say you were working with the picture department, like what was, what was the role that you were serving there? On that particular film, it was a little different, but the way I normally work with the picture department is, especially with Jeff Ford on Endgame, we start pretty early. So as Jeff is building sequences from the set days after they shoot, he'll start to get previs in and like temp visual effects, basically. And he'll start sending those scenes to me as he completes them to get a rough sound pass on them because he has to present those to the directors and try to figure out if the scene's working. So he wants to know early on, since the sound plays such a big role in a lot of these VFX heavy scenes, it helps him with the picture to have some sound there. So we start pretty early. I think we started Endgame a couple years ago. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and we weren't full time, but you know, as he would complete things, we would help him out with stuff. Right on. Where is the picture being edited? Is it, it, is it in the San Francisco area as well? Well, it started in Atlanta where they shot the film. And then after they wrapped shooting, they moved to uh, Disney in Burbank, California. So only we were up, up north here near San Francisco. So all your communication with the picture department is being done via digital means. You're not seeing face-to-face -face much. Exactly. I go down for meetings sometimes, uh, went to the set a few times, but mostly, yes, uh, we're communicating via digital means of some sort. <laughs> Good old-fashioned phone calls. <laughs> what, what are those again? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We have had Nia Hansen on this podcast a couple times, and one of the times she was on, she mentioned that something that she's really jealous that you are really good at is communicating with the director and the picture editors and dis decoding what they're asking for into sound. Is that something that you are just naturally good at, or what, what, what is your key to making that work so well? Thank her very much for saying that. That's very nice. <laughs> but... Uh, um... Yes, I think I'm not sure how I developed that skill, but particularly with the Russo brothers who directed Endgame, I just feel like we have a very similar language when we're talking about sound. And I think they also grew up on a lot of the same movies that I grew up on. So I feel like our shorthand is very good, as well as with Jeff Ford, the picture editor, his uh, shorthand with me is very good. And that helps a lot, just being on the same page in general. But yeah, I think I, I kind of feel like I know what people mean, even when they can't explain it sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm not sure how to explain how to do that. <laughs> But yes, I think particularly with this group, we have a really good communication set. And you have to, right? It's a gigantic film. There's so much stuff going on. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. And it's hard keeping it all orchestrated because, you know, 
this film is also quite long, so it, even just in sheer time, it takes a lot more resources. You know, even if it wasn't a complicated movie, you know, it's three hours, so um, it takes a lot of organization and, and communication with everybody to keep it on track. On a film like Endgame, what percentage of your time is organization and keeping on track, and what percent is actually uh, making sounds? I would say the early part of the film, from when I was saying I start doing small scenes with Jeff and all the way to about the time we start pre-mixing, that's pretty much largely creative. I'm not dealing a lot with schedules in that time frame, so I spend a lot of time. That's where I try to get everything signed off on. So like, I'll be sending sound design ideas to the picture department, to Jeff and Matt Schmidt, and to the brothers, Russo brothers, to hear stuff early on so that I can try to get them happy and get all that sort of creative stuff kind of nailed down as much as possible at that time. And then when the premix starts, it starts to become a lot more about schedule because now the release date is close and we're moving in and it's just kind of, that becomes more of a scheduling thing. Like, oh, you know, reel one took longer than we thought. Reel two's the longest reel, you know. You, you start playing those games at, at that point. But there's still some creative stuff that happens, like with mixing, obviously, making decisions on the stage, you know. And usually by that point, it depends. We haven't heard all of the music yet, so we have to make decisions on the final. When we get the final music, that, and things like that might change. So what kind of super are you on the mix stage? How do you, how do you interact with your mixers? Uh, I love my mixers. Uh, <laughs> Tom Johnson and Juan Peralta are both fantastic mixers that I've mixed with many times on a lot of Marvel projects and other projects. We are very like-minded, so there's rarely a disagreement between us about how something should go. You know, I'm sure occasionally there is, but I like to hear what they think because they have great ears. They're good at mixing, and so I think we all share ideas freely and, and just try to make it the best film we can. So you mentioned that the Russo brothers directed Endgame. They also did Infinity War and uh, Winter Soldier. Did they do Civil War as well? Yes, they did. So you've worked with them many times, but you've also worked on Marvel films with other directors. How is their approach different than uh, other directors in terms of being involved in the sound? Good question. It, it It varies a lot depending on the director. I would say the Russos are pretty involved in sound they're big fans of sound which is nice (laughs) and makes it makes our job much easier because they appreciate it so much and they're always you know willing to go the extra mile to help us make it sound better and that said other directors it kind of varies a lot some directors are newer to this uh to making a film of this size and sometimes i think they're probably just overwhelmed and they know our credentials and they just want our help and kind of let us guide them. Um, But then sometimes more experienced directors have done this before and they wanna, you know, they have an idea of what they wanna do and they might lead us more um, than on other films. But uh, the Russos, they love sound and they're very cooperative and 
they love to hear our ideas, but they also have ideas themselves. So it's kind of a back and forth. What kind of ideas do they bring to the table? Um, lots of ideas. Uh, <laughs> Joe on Infinity War, there's a, uh, in the real one, there's a scene where we hear a spaceship sort of land off screen and Tony Stark is hearing it from inside a building and they really wanted to like confuse the audience, not confuse the audience, but to make the audience wonder what they're hearing before the ship was revealed. And so we spent a lot of time trying different tones and, and different sounds to lead up to him visually seeing the spaceship. So he, he likes to dabble in sound a lot. That's cool. So in other Avenger films that you guys have done, your team has done, there's new characters in, introduced, there's new uh, vehicles, where with Endgame, it's almost a travel back through time. Almost every character we see, we we already know all the vehicles we see, we've already known. Did you get a chance to go out and do much original recording for this, or was this mostly pulling from library of stuff that's been built in other films? I would say it's a little bit of both, because they're definitely, you know, pulling stuff from the past. I mean, we have... I don't want to give away spoilers again, so I'll <laughs> stop myself there, but definitely <laughs> sounds we've heard before in the movie, and we wanted to be true to that. So we did pull from previous films, a lot of films that we had done ourselves even, yeah. uh, but also others have also contributed. But there's also with the, these movies and also in this movie, things tend to advance. So even though it's, you know, the same technology or the kind of like Tony's suit, Iron Man's suit, he's always upgrading, he's always tweaking, he's always changing things. So there's always room for improvement or changes. And there's a lot of new technology in this film that we haven't seen before that they use to, um, I don't know how many spoilers <laughs> I'm supposed to give away, but... Uh, you can give out light spoilers for sure. There's new technology they use to do time travel and things of this nature. So there's still quite a bit of recording that goes on, even though this movie references a lot of old sounds more than the other movies have. I got to say that time travel moment was really impressive to me. Like I just loved being inside of that tube. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Now that, that was kind of a hybrid because one of our sound designers, uh, David Farmer, he did a lot of work on the previous Ant-Man film, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And so he came on board with us and we kind of started with some of that tech that he had started creating on that film. And then we kind of revamped it because, you know, they, they sort of modernize it and, and Iron Man helps improve it in this film. So it was kind of a hybrid of, of old and new. So are you able to do that with lots of different things? Like a, when you, when a character shows up, do you reach out to the person down the hall at Skywalker that cut, you know, wasps wings or something like that for the previous films and ask them to come in? Or do you just take over? Uh, like on Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, all of my friends worked on that film and my mixers, Tom and Juan, mixed that film. So, you know, it was pretty easy for me to have access to all that stuff because Addison Teague was a supervisor who's a friend of mine and David Farmer was the sound designer who, who did a lot of the sound work, sound design in that film. Um, that's It's not always that easy, but, you know, in general, it's not too hard to, to get help. And, and we also share our stuff willingly, you know. 
for others who do the films. Can I ask about your approach with Atmos? Because we, we, we just spent the last couple of weeks over here getting Atmos installed where I live. Um, and I saw the film in Atmos. I haven't seen a whole lot of films in Atmos, but it, it really does feel like a whole different paradigm with regards to like how you put things in space and what you're doing with them. Uh, yeah. Juan could speak to this better uh, than I could, but um, one of the, my favorite parts about Atmos is having the full-frequency surround speakers. Yeah. Because a lot of times in 5.1 or 7.1, you know, it's really great to, to have the fullness of the room and to use the, the, the movement through the room, but it's always kind of a bummer when it goes from front to back and you hear all the low end go away. And Atmos, I feel like we don't have that problem anymore, which is great. I noticed like five, four or five spots in the film where you really decided to go for it with the with the with the low frequency on the surrounds for sure. <laughs> yeah, it just like if something heavy goes over you, it still feels heavy by the time it gets past you, which is really nice. We we like to spatialize stuff. Juan is really good at moving stuff around the room, but without doing it for show or for distraction, just trying to place you in the film. Because we never want to distract from the story or the film. We're trying to tell the story. But if we can make the story better by doing something like that, then, you know, we definitely will. How do you set up the sessions you're delivering to the stage to prepare for Atmos? Are you delivering specific tracks of uh, stuff you want moved around? Or do you just let the mixers decide what they're going to throw around? It's a little bit of both. I mean, we kind of have an idea of what they may want to move around. But as we're pre-mixing, uh, Juan will, you know, so in Atmos, we have object tracks. Yep. And we just kind of keep those loose. We don't necessarily decide ahead of time what will be an object, although we have an idea of a lot of things that might be objects. But what we do is we have generally 24 to, to 36 object tracks that are just blank. And then we have our regular pre-dub, you know, we, we pre-dub in A, B, C, D, E effects, you know, and so on. Uh, so just say in A effects, we have 32 tracks of sound. Uh, we may be pre-mixing and Juan will say, you know what, I think this will read better if I make it an object. So at that time, we'll drag it down to the object tracks. And then Juan has access to, to move it around the room as he wants to. Now, as I understand it, you don't have to put that on a track. You can actually automate whether something jumps into an object mode or not. Is that right? You can now. Um, yeah. <laughs> you can now. For a long time, we couldn't do that, and that's um, kind of why we've been working like this. But in the future, we may change that, and, and it may be easier just to not even have to move it. Nice. Yeah, I'm still I'm still so learning. I'm such a baby in in Atmos right now. It's uh, everything's brand new and sparkly, and it's fun to fun to, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, it, it's still kind of new for all of us. Although we've been doing it for a while now, I believe Juan did the first Atmos track for a film called Oblivion. Ah. Yeah. So he he's a veteran. So when you do have these huge scenes where there's like. 50 characters battling at a time uh not to give away anything for endgame maybe we can just talk about the battle of wakanda in uh, infinity war there's uh -huh. so much going on are you deciding ahead of time what sounds are going to be featured or are you cutting everything possible and letting it get worked out on the mix stage uh yes we are mostly 
we were mostly deciding. However, there is a gray area where we may not be sure about some things. And also as VFX develops, sometimes we're not sure how prominent something will be. So we may cover it in case, you know, we'll make a judgment call. But in general, we we don't try to cover everything. We try to cover what we think are the most important things. And then we pare it down from there. Because like I was saying earlier, once the music comes in, we may find that we only have sonic space for two things or three things, you know, and maybe we've cut four or maybe we've cut five, not knowing how the music was going to go. You know, if it's a solo trumpet line, <laughs> you know, we could have a quite a mo bit more going on. But if they decide to score full orchestra, we may need to thin back to play nice with the music. So we plan it as smartly as we can. We don't cover everything. We try to cover what we think we'll play and then subtract from there. That's a smart way to go. I I hate it, though, when you make, well, not you, but if the wrong call is made and VFX show up <laughs> and it's like, oh, that thing is huge. I thought it was going to be small in the background, and then you're scrambling. That definitely happens occasionally, and sometimes we are just, you know, well... We, we decided not to cover it. Here it is. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> Inevitably, we have to do fixes during the final mix. Sometimes just because VFX are late, we, we have to fly stuff in or whatever. But we're, we're kind of used to, used to that. We're battle-hardened by this point. <laughs> do you have any sounds that you've built through this whole process that are your favorites, that are your babies? In, in all the movies in general, you mean, or just Endgame? Uh, let's, let's stick to Endgame. Why not? Okay. I love the time travel stuff. I don't. I know it's kind of obvious, but uh, as you were saying, flying through the the tube of time travel is just a really cool, fun sound. Especially when in Atmos, when you can kind of surround people in it, it feels like you're taking a ride. So I always find that fun and, and interesting to listen to. Yeah, it's it's such a. Again, I've only even seen a few films in Atmos, and that moment in particular was. Um was very impactful to me that the time travel it just it, that one stuck with me and then there was one other one other moment where i guess uh, everything stopped and cut to black and you kind of just rumbled every lfo in the it felt like you were like let's see if these theaters can handle this and then just <laughs> went for it right <laughs> right on yeah uh there's there's lots of fun little moments in the film for sound but yeah time travel sticks out to me nice how long was the mix schedule for this the pre-mix time for effects, I believe, was about 20 days, 21 days. And then the uh, final mix with the mastering was about, I want to say, seven weeks. And then the last week of that was mastering, print mastering and things like that. So the first six was the real work the real mixing when you first hear those numbers it seems like a long time but then when you remember how long the movie is and how <laughs> intense and complicated it is that actually doesn't seem like that long. i was no it doesn't exactly i you know we were dealing with 11 reels and it felt like by the time we just like hurried to get to the end of one reel we were late to start the next one <laughs> you know it was a whole race but it was it was good. By the end of it, we were able to go back through and really polish stuff and work with the directors and work with uh, our picture editors, Jeff and Matt, to just you know really dig in and and polish stuff. 
which was nice, which is something we don't always get to do. Because we started so early with sound design, there were less uh, issues or questions about sound design because everybody was already happy with everything. So we got to do a lot more mixing and a lot less experimenting. Well, at what point did your last VFX come in? <laughs> Quite late. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say we probably got 10 to 12 shots on the last day of the mix. So we had to go back and check everything. But our VFX department is really good about making sure their sync stays. So, you know, these were just, we had the anim animation and everything for all these uh, previous to that. But the last polished shots came in the last day of the final. And they were good at ma maintaining sync. So we went back and checked them and they were all good. But, you know, it's always a little bit scary when when you're doing that in the last day. Scary is a tame word, I can imagine, for that <laughs> moment. <laughs> so yeah. how do you, when you see the scale of the movie, manage it? Uh, I, I'm not sure the best way to word this, but like, there's so much going on throughout this three hours. You only have X amount of time to work on it. How do you break it down into pieces to make it manageable so your brain doesn't explode? Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, usually the first day that I see the movie, I put my head down on my desk and cry a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything's okay. Uh, but no, but really to answer your question, I think the way we do it is we kind of break it down into smaller chunks, you know? We have a great team of sound editors uh, on the film uh, on this particular one, we had our sound designers, Dave Farmer, Nia Hansen, and then we had three other effects editors, Josh Gold, Samson Neslin, and Steve Orlando. The, the film's already broken into reels, and so I assign reels to each of the editors and kind of break it up that way. And then uh, me and Nia and Farmer kind of share the design, and that's kind of fluid uh, depending on how much each of us have to do or what our strengths are. Like I had David do a lot of time travel work on this because of his work on Ant-Man and the Wasp. Nia did a lot of work with the suits, the, the travel suits and, and things like that. So basically, yeah, we break it into reels per editor and that makes it feel a little more doable. So if you're only working on these three reels of you know these 11 reels, it feels a little more manageable. Do you ever ask to get put on a nice, quiet documentary in between the Marvel films? I've been dreaming about that for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> it would be great. I'm hoping to get a nice little walk and talk or maybe a small animation <laughs> someday. That's awesome. I'm <laughs> so impressed with the way you're able to... Uh, pick your head up back off the desk after you've had your little cry and tackle these <laughs> things because it uh, it seems like uh, obviously it's not your first rodeo so you've built up uh, the ways to deal with it but it seems like after watching that film when I was leaving the studio the, the theater sorry I was just like how do you even put that all through your brain to tackle that it's very <laughs> impressive well thank you yeah I mean we have such a great crew and, and they make it so easy you know, so much easier to tackle. And just knowing that I have that sort of firepower backing me really helps. 
What would you do if on the next film, uh, three of your five editors were busy on another project? Like, are, are you, are they your, your, your people or are you able to swap them out easier? No, they're definitely my people. I mean, I, 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 if three of my editors couldn't do a film, I'm not sure that I could do the film. <laughs> wow, that's a great uh, compliment for them. Certainly, you know, if occasionally we have conflicts and someone's busy, I can probably deal with replacing one or two people. But if I didn't have largely my whole team, it would be difficult to pull off a movie like this. I guess they can find it in their schedule to work on Endgame. You know, people, people move things around for that kind of thing. Yeah, luckily we were able to cancel a few things. <laughs> you know, the one thing I just kind of was curious about, while you're in the midst of the editorial, you're in the midst of all the sound design, like in a broad sense, what's your day like, right? Your alarm clock goes off in the morning and then what? Uh, it kind of depends on the period of time we're in during post-process, but in general... Alarm goes off. I drive to beautiful Skywalker Ranch. I start the day with the boring stuff, you know, like scheduling, money, time, all that sort of thing. And then I move into the creative. I tend to be more creative later in the day, I find. I don't know. I think that's just how my brain works. So I try to get all the business out of the way first and then start the designing and editing process later in the day. I do a lot of, you know, reviewing with my editors will watch back stuff they've been working on, give notes, and it's kind of a back and forth. We, we kind of riff off of each other. I might see something one editor has done and then that'll give me an idea and I'll go back and try something else. We're like uh, a, team, a team who's working with each other and, and inspiring each other. Shannon, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, it's been great talking to you and congratulations on Endgame. It's quite an achievement. Thanks so much and thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you guys. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you. Thanks, Shannon. Get back to work. <laughs> All right. Bye. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 